0: Well, we wanted to, uh, in this season of, uh, of gratitude and generosity, take a few weeks to really establish a biblical framework. A biblical framework for why Christians engage in acts of compassion, mercy, and justice. Why is it different for Christians to get involved in acts of compassion, mercy, and justice than for anyone else? And so we wanted to lay a biblical framework for that. We started last week with Micah 6. If you remember Micah 6... There's a conversation in Micah chapter 6 where the prophet Micah lays out this conversation between God, the people of Israel, and then the prophet speaks a word. And if you remember, the the simple summary of that is God saying to the people, what did I do to make you tired of me? God uttering this word to the people, looking at what's going on, assessing the situation and saying, what did I do to make you guys get to this place? It's really a call of judgment on the people as he's observed the way they're treating the people on the margins of society, the way they're treating the poorest of the poor. And God's saying, you've strayed from my path. And then the people respond to God. If you remember, the people respond and they say, God, what do you want us to do? How can we make things right? How can we make things right, God? Do you want all kinds of sacrifices, God? If you remember specifically, they say, do you want a thousand rivers of oil, God? Do you want even us to sacrifice our firstborn children. They're getting serious. They're like, what do you want? And the prophet's voice chimes in. And the prophet says, no, no, no. You already know what God wants. You already know. It's written all over the law. It's written all throughout the Old Testament. God wants you to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. He lays it out just like that. You already know It's about loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus puts it in the New Testament. So the prophets say the same thing. You already know what God wants. You already know. So today we're going to pick up a similar conversation from a different point in Israel's history. This is found in Isaiah chapter 58, if you want to go there. Isaiah 58, 1 through 12. Many believe that this text was written at a period where either the people were already in exile in Israel's history. First Assyria came and wiped out the northern tribes, and then later Babylon came and and wiped out Jerusalem and the southern tribes and took a bunch of people into exile in Babylon. They just literally took like the best of the best, smartest of the smartest, all the nobility, they took them from their homes and took them to Babylon with them. And the people were devastated, decimated. The nation was just, it was, it was just a mess. And the people were trying to find their way and trying to understand how the people of God, the chosen people of God, how did they get to this place? How did they get to this place? It's not the way it was supposed to work out. This conversation in Isaiah 58 that we're going to pick up, it's specifically about fasting, the spiritual practice of Fasting. So many believe that the setting here is similar to what the prophet Zechariah described, which I'll show you here on the screen. Zechariah says, The word of the Lord came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years. Yes, that's what that says. When you did this, when you took two months out of the year to fast and mourn, God says, was it really for me that you fasted? And were you, when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? I share this part with you, this part of the prophecy from Zechariah, to show you that these people who were in exile were deeply committed, dedicated, taking two months out of the year to set aside their hunger, their needs, and seek God. So they were dedicated spiritually to trying to figure out how they got to this place of exile, what did they do wrong? God, help us. They're crying out, they're mourning, they're weeping, they're fasting, denying themselves, looking for God's favor. And fasting, Richard Foster writes in Celebration of Discipline, he says, more than any other spiritual discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. So fasting is this desire to, to have God reveal, God, what, what, is it, what are the barriers, what are the idols, what are the things I've put up that are between me and you, God, and I want you to knock those things down. Reveal those things to me, God. That is at the heart of fasting. Another commentator says, fasting is an attempt to align one's priorities to the will of God. The idea is that when we deny ourselves many times in the history of Judeo-Christianity, it's denying oneself from food, but it can be other practices as well. And so when you abstain from something, it's so that God can reveal to us, again, what stands between us and God. And God can begin to shift our attention back to him, back to his priorities in the world. Where we can begin to see that, God, I am obsessed with these other things. I have these other things in my life that are controlling me, and it makes me turn my attention from you, God. And so these people, again, are taking two months out of their year to try to turn their attention to God. But Zechariah says, was it really for God that you did that? Or was it just for yourself? Was it really for God that you did that? Or was it just for you? There's an African-American preacher that I knew in Seattle who was prone to say, sometimes when you hear a word like this, it doesn't make you say amen. It makes you say, ouch. You hear one of these prophetic words from the Lord. Hey, God, we're trying hard here. Don't you see it? And God says, yeah, I see it. But aren't you just doing that for yourself? Ouch. 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 So Isaiah, he picks up this theme. He picks up this theme of fasting, and let's enter the conversation. First, you have the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord says, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion, to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right, has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. They're asking me for justice, like we saw last week. They're asking me for justice and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? See, what's interesting here is that God has noticed. The people are saying, why did we do this and you're not hooking us up with good stuff, God? We're trying hard. Don't you see how hard we're trying, God? Throw us a bone here. What more do you want? He sees that the people are trying. God does see their dedication. And actually what's deceiving about the way the NIV translates this, as I dug through some scholars, it's important to look at what the text really says. And apparently for some reason the NIV inserted these words into our text of they seem eager to seek. Those aren't there. The actual intent of this passage is that the people are seeking God, but there's something they're missing. They are trying to fast and hear from the Lord, but there's something else going on that's keeping them from knocking down those barriers between them and God. The voice of the people says, God, we're doing our best. Why don't you see it? Why haven't you noticed? And here's where things get real. In the text. Because again, last week I mentioned this. If you ask God a question like, God, what do you want from me? Are you ready to hear the response? Are you ready? Because it's about to get real. Because God's going to respond, and it's like, oh, that's not what we were actually, God, we just wanted you to be like, oh, just kidding, way to go on the fasting. Yeah, keep it up. But God's going to respond, and again, it's one of those moments where maybe you can't say amen. You just say, ouch, when you hear the response, the voice of God. God continues. He says, oh, you, let's get real about fasting, this spiritual practice aimed at, at, at breaking down barriers between us and God. And maybe for, for you, fasting isn't a helpful thing to think about this morning. I don't know how many of you are, are aware or, or regularly practice fasting. So maybe you need to insert a different spiritual discipline in there. Where, God, don't you see my prayer life? Don't you see my commitment to studying your word, God? Don't you see how much I go to church? I'm a good Hey, I'm a good church attender as a pastor. I got to tell you, my church attendance record is pretty darn good over the last 12 years. All right? Really good. Really good. I mean, I'm thinking God must really love me. But hey! Sometimes we do that though, right? God, don't you see the stuff we're doing? That's what the people are saying. Don't you see our fasting, God? And God is saying, who's it really for? For you or for me? And so God continues here in the passage. He says, let's get real about this. This is my paraphrase, by the way. Let's get real about your spiritual practices. Let's get real. Your fasting is great. Your fasting, I I do see it, God says. I do see it. But fasting is more than just a day or two where you hang your head low, you wear some rough clothes, and you lay down in a heap of ashes. That's what the text basically says. Fasting is more than just this day that you set aside and you say, okay, the rest of my life is this way, God. Put Sunday worship into this. The rest of my life, six days of the week, I live like this. But God, remember, for that one hour, I was a really good person. Because I sat in church and listened to that guy talk and sang some songs. Come on, God! Throw me a bone, God. That's kind of what the people are saying. And God's saying, no, fasting, your spiritual practices, it's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than that. So he starts to say that fasting is more than this outward display of piety, this outward display to people of, look what I do. This is how serious I take my faith. See what I do. He says if your fasting is real, it should start connecting to the way you live. If your spiritual practice is real and you're connecting with God, it should start to affect the way you live your life. And people will notice not just in how much you read your Bible, but in the way you treat other people. In the way you speak to other people, it'll start to show up in your daily lives. And so God's voice rings out. God's voice rings out in verse six of Isaiah 58. He says, Is this not the fasting I have chosen? He says, You want to know about fasting? Here's the fasting I have chosen. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Yoke, if you think about like the yoke that ties the oxen, these are the things that would tie people into maybe like indentured servitude, a slavery of some sort, the things that would tie people up. the, The heavy yoke Jesus talks about that the Pharisees, the religious leaders put on people, this heavy yoke that you have to obey all of these things and it was impossible for the people. And God is saying the kind of fasting I am choosing, And Jesus says the same is to break those things that would that would chain people. He continues, is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. This is the kind of fasting I have chosen. This is what God says. So to summarize, the spiritual practice of fasting, the spiritual discipline, an attempt to listen to God, get right with God, discover the things that stand between us and God, discover the things that control us, discover where our priorities are out of whack with God's will for our lives. Fasting should turn our eyes outward. If we're really fasting, if we're really practicing spiritual discipline so that we can align our lives with God's best intention and purpose for our lives, God is saying, then in the end, what what we should see is a life that's outward-focused, other-focused, that sees the needs in our world and says, I can do something about those needs with what God has given me. Now, I know some of us are uncomfortable, potentially, with, with the idea of social justice, or, or what has been known as the social gospel in uh, ages past, and every now and then I still see these things creep up. Of uh, sometimes you'll see like, if your church uses these words, it's code language for this crazy form of communism or something. I see this stuff. I'm aware of it. I- I've seen posts uh, from time to time on Facebook that float, and they're like, if your church starts talking about justice, run. It's just becoming liberal and progressive. Watch out. Which is hilarious to me because this is the Bible that I just read. That's the Bible. I didn't just make some stuff up from like Bernie Sanders' website or something. This is the Bible that's saying this is what God wants, God's intentions for us as his people. But I, but I recognize the struggle that we're in, I recognize these tensions, I recognize that unfortunately some of this stuff has been politicized, it's been like, ooh, we've got to be careful, you're either going to talk about Jesus and evangelism or you're going to talk about justice. We've got to talk about both, because this is God's concern. My Old Testament professor, uh, this was just kind of an interesting thing, in doing some, some research, found a, one of my Old Testament professors was a scholar. That was kind of nice to see. Like, hey, the guy who taught me, like, he knew some stuff. That's kind of made me feel good about my education. He wrote this about God's justice. He said, God has a claim on justice. Ooh, I liked that. God has a claim on justice. In Scripture, justice is never abstracted or separated from God as its source. I thought that was a good word. If one approaches the Old Testament prophets with the erroneous assumption they had some abstract idea of justice, you're just going to be left with an agenda for social reform. See, that's the critique sometimes we get, right, in the political sphere. Is like, oh, you're just talking about social reform, church. Don't just talk about social reform. No, we're talking about God's. Justice. I love this. Biblical justice is neither simply a value nor a reform program. It is the means by which God's kingdom is established and is described as the foundation of his throne. Justice. Putting things back together, making things right, whole. That's the arc of the biblical narrative. The biblical narrative ends with revelation where everything is made new. That's justice. That's no more tears, no more pain. Things that were broken being put back together again. That's the biblical call of justice and the whole of Scripture points to God's justice and asks us, will we get involved in that? Partnering with God to make things right, make things whole, God's justice. I want to turn it over this morning uh, to our worship leader, Jay Denton, who's going to share a little bit of his story of participating in, in justice ministries and other things in our world. So Jay, the floor is yours.
1: Um, I came in this morning, and is Pam Perry here? No, she's not. So Pam, Perry, and Casey uh, had gotten me this, and I walked into my seat this morning, and there was a sign that says, this is you, uh, with this little bobblehead and a guitar and everything like that. So I'm just going to leave this up here for a moment, Um, but again, I've gotten a chance to meet some of you and get to know some of you, not nearly as many as I would like to. I, I do live just over the hill in Los Angeles, um, and so I'm up here on, on Tuesdays and I'm up here on Sundays. But I would love the chance eventually to get to know um, some of you. When, when Chad was going through this series and, and talking about what this series is about in terms of justice, and in terms of what do we do as a church, both collectively as the greater church internationally, and then what do we do here in our community as Simi Covenant in terms of justice. Uh, we started talking, and then he asked me to share a little bit of, um, of my story. I, uh, again, I, I'm kind of a strange individual. I, re- I have two jobs. I, I am a songwriter, and I'm a hand-to-hand combat trainer. Those are my Uh, Those are my two jobs. They don't have anything to do with each other. Um, And, you know, you might think that they would balance you out, hitting different sides of the brain, but in in reality, it it tends towards complete imbalance in terms of all aspects of life. But um, anyways, those are my two jobs, and that's been my experience. I I came out, I'm from Texas originally, I went to college um, here at University of Southern California. We have any Trojans in the house? Actually, do we have any Bruins in the house? Yeah, yeah, all right. Scoreboard. Um, I, although, I have to say, I was impressed. I mean, it was a good, uh, yesterday it was a good game. For those of you who have no clue what I'm talking about, uh, USC Trojans played the US, uh, UCLA Bruins last night, and we won. We won. Much, much to Jen's. I knew this morning, if I come in and UCLA has won, my morning is going to be Jen like hampering me all morning, and, and vice versa the other way. Um, but I went out to, I came out here for school uh, at USC. My whole life at that point had just been dominated by sports. Um, that was all that I knew. I was, I was an athlete. And then my sister, when I was about 16, drugged me on a mission trip to Peru. I had to go on this little church mission trip to Peru. Um, at the time, I was not really seeking the Lord. Um, and I spent three weeks in the jungles of Peru working with street kids, uh, orphans had been pulled a lot of times out of dumpsters and pulled into this orphanage. Um, and what really struck me in that moment was I saw some of these kids that literally had nothing, nothing to their name, nothing, but they had Jesus. And I saw more joy in them and more contentment and a greater sense of purpose than some of the millionaires I knew back in uh, Dallas, Texas. And... and um, and the athletes that I was running with. So that kind of rewired my life a little bit. I said, okay, I really have enjoyed athletics, I've enjoyed sports, but to me there's still really a game and I wanna make my life about something bigger, um, something else. So I came to SC, um, USC, I studied international relations with a focus on terrorism, genocide, humanitarian disasters, and the inability of governments and international institutions to help in those areas. So I basically spent four years um, invested in the worst things uh, that happened in the world. So that was quite a fun major. I, then I trained um, at, through a program called OCS, Officer Candidate School at the Marine Corps up in Quantico, Virginia. It's essentially boot camp for officers. Um, and I got a commission offered to me, and I had the option of accepting that commission or declining. It was a new program the Marines were doing to bring in um, more people that might not necessarily know if they were going military or not. Uh, but to give him access to do the program and then give him the option of accepting a commission or declining it. Then I went back and finished my senior year, and I started talking with a man named Sam Childers. I don't know if any of y'all have heard of Sam Childers. He, a movie came out about this guy called The Machine Gun Preacher um, with Gerard Butler, which if you've heard of him, you've probably heard of him through that. Um, he also wrote a book called Another Man's War. And this man, he, he had a pretty rough life. He grew up as a, a drug dealer and as a Enforcer uh, force for drug dealers. Um, then he had a radical experience with Jesus. Jesus turned his life around. He wanted a trip to Uganda, saw what was happening with boys, particularly young kids uh, in Uganda, how this organization, this militia group called the LRA would come through, they'd kill an entire village, and they'd run off with the kids, and they'd force them to become soldiers, sometimes as early as the age of five, um, and they'd send them into combat with a machine gun uh, and they'd load them up with, uh, with cocaine to give them a sense of invincibility and then go tell them to shoot this machine gun at, at a village. And so uh, Sam saw what was happening there. He felt God's call because he'd started a construction business. And uh, he went over to Sudan at the time, before South Sudan was independent, and he built an orphanage and a church. But then that orphanage would come under attack. And then he'd see villages nearby where people were, um, where the LRA would come through, hit a village, and then he would go with his team and he'd clean up after it. And he'd, he'd see if there were any survivors and he'd take the survivors back to his orphanage. But after a while, he got really tired of cleaning up after LRA devastating villages. So he started working with this um, militia group in South Sudan called the SPLA. And they started trying to intercept um, intercept patrols from the LRA and try to either stop the LRA from hitting a village or after the LRA had hit a, hit a village and would take all these kids and kidnap these kids, he would go afterwards and try to uh, intercept them and get the kids back from the LRA. Um, so he started doing that and, and it ended up being a really incredible story and he's done amazing work really over the last 15 years there. So I went back and I started talking to Sam and I was saying, you know, I've got this I've got, this, um, I've got this commission offered to me with the Marine Corps, but I'm studying, and everything I've studied has, has been humanitarian disasters that seem to fall between the cracks of national interests and militaries and law enforcement. Um, there's there's a, a very large population, both globally and locally, of people that have been marginalized and have fallen between the cracks of the justice system or fallen between the cracks of international militaries and international security groups and and so I, I decided i really wanted to devote my life to that so i said all right sam i will um, i'll decline this commission of the marine corps if i can come fight for you and so we started that conversation i finished school then i went and worked over in uh, overseas in india for six months um, building network in the counter human trafficking world uh, community doing some work in that world and then uh, then i was over in east africa um, I spent some time in South Sudan now, South Sudan, and worked with these kids. You know, some of them are eight years old, and they would have a bullet bullet holes in their shoulders. Or, you know, one guy had part of his side missing from a landmine, and he was he was 11, um, or, or a kid missing an eye. And I, I'm not trying to throw a bunch of of stories just to try to move you with some of the the things that have happened in the world, but just just to give you a sense of perspective. So, anyways, coming back uh, after these things, really the these experiences, the question always hit me and the question that I've been working through for really the last decade, decade and a half, has been really what is justice? We have, we have these ideas of what justice is, but a lot of times the way we actually go about seeking justice is dominated and is determined by the lens that we look at it through. And sometimes we can have this grandiose idea of justice that people have have argued about what it is for centuries, for millennium. Is justice equality? Is it freedom? Is it eye for eye? Is it retribution? Is it punishment that equals the offense? What is justice? And really, after everything I've seen, it seems to all boil down to justice is right relationships. Um, Right relationships. And we see that in the context of, uh, of, of the legal system. We see that in the context of homes. Justice is about right relationships, uh, respect and, and fairness in relationships, whether that relationship be uh, the governors of a state or the governors of a country to the people that are governed, whether that relationship be a student to a teacher or a husband to a wife or parents to kids. Justice is about right relationship. And so... If we think about the justice system, we think about the job of justice. Whose job is it to create a system and sustain a system of justice? If we think about that as just being the job of governments, militaries, law enforcement, what we have is we then delegate the job of justice to people that cannot actually create it. Because rules, regulations, laws, and law enforcement, they can punish infractions of justice but they can't actually create an environment of justice. The same way that if you have a a father who's never been arrested for domestic abuse, uh, or a husband who's never been arrested for domestic abuse, he may have a clean record, but that doesn't necessarily make him a good husband or a good father. Um, Justice, the, the law enforcement system, cannot create an environment of justice in his home. That is the job of something else. And as, uh, as Chad was talking about, and as we look at this verse, we have the people of Israel crying out to God for justice. Give us justice, Father. Teach us. Teach us. Show us. We're praying for justice. We're fasting for justice. And he turns around and says, I see what you're doing, but you treat each other poorly. You take advantage of, uh, you take advantage of your employees. You don't give your people just wages. Uh, you argue and you hurt each other. And so it's a kind of a different sense of, of what justice is. And, I, and so I think really when we look at justice in this world and in our community, the presence of justice in the system is synonymous with the presence of the kingdom of God. I know that's a big jump and I, I could talk to you uh, for a while about how I get to that jump from justice being rightness in a relationship to justice being um, the same as the presence of the kingdom of God. But for now, I'm just going to leave it at that because i got more things I want to say. Um, if we think about the present state of the church, right, the church in America, what are some things that come to mind? Um, we've, we've talked about this really over the last couple months. A lot of times we think of the church now as, as losing relevance in culture. Does that sound familiar? Losing relevance, losing legal battles, losing political capital, and our system, and we think about the church and the work of the church being threatened by government policies that are coming out, um, by elections, by things that are happening around us. We have shootings happening, we have all of these things. Um, and I, my, my fear is that what that's done for us as the church is it's pushed us as the church to this place of defensiveness where we're trying to hold on to the ground that we have We're trying to see if we can't find a way to work within the political system to to get new legislation passed that will protect the the freedoms that we have um, to to worship the way that we worship, um, to pray in schools, um, to do all of these things, which are all good things. But I think that we put so much of our focus on that. We put so much of our focus on trying to build systems that would give us better, a better sense of justice and a better sense of freedom. When in reality, I think that we, uh, we are not the underdog in society. If you, really, if you look through human history, the most resilient organization, the most resilient group of people in human history is the church. You have it starting with Jesus. It, 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 Jesus came in an occupied territory of Israel, occupied by Roman rule. The, the Romans tried to crush the people of Israel. Then later they tried to crush the movement of Israel. You've had empires throughout throughout history that have tried to crush the church. But it's never happened. And you see Rome has fallen. That's old news. That's in the history books. But the church is still going forward. So I, I really want to think, uh, talk to us about two things um, in terms of the lens that we look at justice at that hopefully can change sort of the way that we Um, approach what justice looks like in our daily lives. The first is that the kingdom of God and that the work of God and the work of the church is not the underdog. I think a lot of times if we act as though we are the underdog, we start acting very cautiously. We start acting very defensively. We stop taking initiative and we try to just protect what we have instead of going forward. Uh, If you think about, um, if you think about in the scriptures, one of the most Common examples of the underdog fighting um, uh, fighting the greater power would be David and Goliath. Does that sound familiar? We always teach the story of David and Goliath as being the way the underdog won. Uh, and I don't know if you've heard of an author named Malcolm Gladwell. He's written two big influential books, one called Outliers, one called um, uh, the tipping point. He's, he's written others, but those are kind of the two big ones. He's a big social psychologist. Um, he, he looks at trends in, in history. He works, looks at trends in business. But he wrote a book called David and Goliath, where it, his, his goal in this book is to debunk the myth that David was actually the underdog. He says if you really look at, at warfare and tactics at that time, you have Goliath, who's a giant and he might look terrifying, he might look intimidating, he might look scary. But when you have David, who'd been training with a sling for years, and when he'd look at um, Malcolm Gladwell, he would, he would study slingers at that time, and what they could do in terms of their accuracy, how, how fast they could hurl these stones, and how pinpoint accurate uh, they could be with it. Uh, and, and really, when, what his argument is in this book, is when you look at the story of David and Goliath, it's essentially it would be a similar thing to a sword and a gun in a fight. I don't know if any of you are in law enforcement. Sometimes the distance, the amount of distance can change that reality significantly. If there's a gun and a knife in a fight close range, a knife might have the upper hand. But with distance, like the field between David and Goliath, a sling actually has a tremendous advantage over that sword. So, or another way to look at it would be uh, any Indiana Jones fans? in the house, right? We got Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's this one uh, kind of famous scene now where Indiana Jones is, um, he's running and eventually he gets squared off um, with this this massive, massive individual, scary looking guy with a crazy sword, saber, and he gives this big display of what he can do, just showing Indiana Jones how he's going to cut him to pieces. And Indiana Jones just kind of looks at the guy And then pulls out a gun and shoots him and drops him right there. And that's it. They move on. And uh, the the funny story behind that is in the movie, they actually had choreographed a big fight scene. It was supposed to be this 30, 45-second fight scene between Indiana Jones and his opponent. And they'd been shooting this scene over and over. And by the end of the day, Indiana Jones was so, or Harrison Ford was so tired that just... Out of exhaustion, one take, he just didn't do the fight scene. He pulled out his gun and just shot. And the other actor went with it. And they ended up saying, oh, that's brilliant. We'll go with that. I think as the church, when we look at the church's role in society, and we look at the church's role in terms of seeking justice, seeking rightness in relationship, seeking to repair broken relationships. I think too often we see ourselves so much as the underdog that we do not step up to actually do things that if we realized that we actually had the advantage, we would do. When you think of, um, when you think of sports, I was hoping that I could use, as an example, USC and UCLA last night as a complete blowout, but unfortunately it wasn't a blowout. It was a pretty close game. But have you ever watched a high, school, a high school sporting event that's just a total blowout? You've got what the visiting team or the home team is just destroying the other team. It's not even close. If you look at what's happening on the sidelines, and you could take video of what people are like on the different sidelines, it's a very different picture, right? You see one side, you see people that are demoralized, and the last thing they do, it's like every time it's their turn to go back into the game, they're groaning because they know they're just going to go into the game and just get crushed. Meanwhile, on the other side, with the winners, you see them getting really hyped up. You see they're sending in the second string. They're sending in the third string sometimes. They're trying trick plays. And, the, and, and what you see on the sidelines is everybody's so eager to get into the game because they know they're working on the winning team. And they know then that they actually have the freedom to try things. That's when they try the trick play. It might fail. It might fall flat on its face. But they're willing to try it because they're on the winning team. And they know ultimately that their team has pretty much won the game. When we think about us as the church and culture, if we posture ourselves, even here at Simi Covenant, if we posture ourselves as the underdog in what's going on in the city around us, if we see ourselves as just the ones that are being marginalized by an increasingly secularized culture, if if we see ourselves as the ones that have to be careful and tiptoeing about the way we talk about Jesus or even identifying as a Christian in the workplace, because it might lose us professional points. It might lose us political points. Uh, It might give us a stigma as being someone that's just trying to spread a message or evangelize or just uh, try to indoctrinate people to what we believe. If we posture ourselves that way, we will live very careful lives. We won't take risks as a community or individually. We won't take risks to actually walk into our communities and see how we can be a part of the work of repairing broken relationships and creating an environment of good relationships. The second thing I want to talk about is that the kingdom of God, the church, and the plan of God is not a defensive plan. It's an offensive plan. If you look at the way God actually commissions the church initially, it comes from Matthew 16, 18. Jesus talks to Peter after he's come back, um, after really, when he commissions Peter to be the leader of the church, and he says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. If you, if you really look closely at that, if you, if you see the language that's used when it talks about hell, it talks about the darkness, it says the gates of hell. Gates do not move offensively. Gates are a defensive thing. If you have, I know this is very outdated at this point, but if you have a castle or if you have a military base or if you have any kind of base, the gate is the thing that you protect. It is the thing that you must protect most because it's the most vulnerable point of your defensive system, right? And so when Jesus says that the gates of hell will not overcome the church, that actually the language that's implied there is that the church is what is being offensive, And the darkness, hell, hopelessness, violence, all of these things, that's actually the defensive thing, that eventually we know, because we know the story of the gospel, that eventually that will be wiped away. We are on the winning team, and what we are invited into is we're invited into being a part of the offensive movement of pushing the darkness back. And when I talk about the offensive movement, I don't mean it in the sense of uh, the church as a... Uh, as an institution gaining political power, gaining military power, nothing like that. I mean, what Jesus has, has defined the church as is a movement of love and a movement of justice and a movement that repairs relationships, both us with God and then us with all of the people around us in whatever our sphere is, and we're invited to be a part of that. When we think about injustice, even the word injustice, It means simply without justice. Injustice is not a thing in itself. Injustice fills the void where justice is gone. The same way that darkness is not an actual thing. If you turn a light on, you don't see the darkness fighting back at the light. The light expels the darkness, not the other way around. It works the same way. When there is an environment... Of justice and when we we work hard to create right relationships foster right relationships just injustice starts to move away in mark 3 um, 1 through 6 there's a story of Jesus going into uh, going into the temple and it's a story of him healing a man that had a shriveled hand which you know I don't know if you've seen my my finger that I've been trying to play the guitar with over the last month but it's a uh, it's a little shriveled in the moment I've got this finger that 's taking a little bit of a hike this direction Um, so I can relate in a moment, but uh, you see Jesus walking into the temple, and there's a man with a shriveled hand, and the Pharisees are watching to see if Jesus will heal this man on the Sabbath. And the crazy thing about it is they're seeing if Jesus will heal this man on the Sabbath because that would break their law. If he heals this man on the Sabbath, they can then attack Jesus as being a lawbreaker who worked on the Sabbath day. And Jesus' response then, he asks this man to stand up, and he heals him, and his response is, is it right to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? The funny thing is, when Jesus says the choice is to do right, is it right to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath, he's equating doing nothing for this man as evil. The, the, The Pharisees, they're not intentionally trying to commit wrongs on the Sabbath, but what are they doing? They have someone that's hurting in their midst. They've got a man that's broken that's hurting, and not only are they not reaching out to him to be a part of that healing process, but they actually get angry when Jesus heals him. A lot of times in our lives, the choices that we make, it's not necessarily the choice between doing good and doing evil. The choices between doing good and doing nothing, and in reality, when we choose to do nothing, when we have the power to be a part of healing broken relationships, when we have the power to be a part of extending justice to the marginalized, we have the power to reach out to that individual that is hurting and broken and we do nothing. That in the scriptures is actually equated with evil. That's what we start looking at when you see the beginning of Isaiah 58, what Chad read earlier. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. They're doing all these things. They're praying, they're fasting, but it doesn't equate to justice. I, as a fight trainer... We have, you know, sometimes because I spar a lot. And uh, one of my favorite things to do is spar guys that come in and they're bodybuilders, right? And we we get these bodybuilders that come in to train and they're yoked. Uh, These guys are strong. They could bench press a horse. And they come in and they start sparring, fighting. And they're the easiest people to hit on the planet because they're so slow in their movement. They start moving like this. They start hitting. You can see what's happening. You can see it coming a mile away. And these guys, I tell you what, they are some of the most disciplined individuals I've ever met. They do all the dieting. They, they work out six and a half days a week. They diet. They, they don't eat carbs. They don't drink beer. They don't consume happiness in any form. <laughs> well, they are disciplined and they are structured. But ultimately, as a bodybuilder, they're training And they're putting themselves through this regiment for the mirror, not for a fight. I I wonder if what God is saying to us in this passage, uh, what he was saying to the people of Israel at that time, and what he says to us now is, are we training spiritually? Are we seeking the Lord? Are we coming here? Are we worshiping? Are we studying the word of God? Are we praying? Are we doing that for the mirror? Are we doing it for the fight? Are we... Are we here? Are we seeking the Lord so that we can feel better about ourselves, as as Chad was saying? So that we can feel a little bit less guilty? So that whatever your vice happens to be, maybe you do it a little less? And so that we can have a little bit more of a platform to build ourselves up and feel good about ourselves? Or are we here working in community, learning from God, worshiping God? so that we can be changed and that we can be stronger when we leave this place and we go and we actually go about the work of justice in our communities. Uh, A pastor in Los Angeles, Erwin McManus, says this. A lot of times we're crying out to God, saying, God, do something. And God's response is, I have done something. I made you, now you do something. We have this amazing ability to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, to be a part of the movement of justice. And when I talk about justice, this is not something that has to happen overseas. I mean right here in Simi Covenant. Justice might look like you could be a 15-year-old kid, and what pursuing and seeking justice in your life might be is seeing that kid that's at school, that's marginalized, that's alone, and what gives them comfort are these thoughts of violence, these, these thoughts of getting back at the other kids that have pushed them aside. And reaching out to that kid might be the most important thing to prevent injustice that could happen. The police, they can't, they can't prevent uh, a kid from doing something, from coming in with a, with a gun somewhere and trying to, trying to commit an act of violence. They can't monitor every single child. They can't monitor every person. But we can. We can see those around us. We can see the people in our communities. And we can reach out and be a part of that work of justice. Um, I think as a church, if we start to be known for what we're for more than what we're against, I think that will change the church in America. I think it will change the church here in our city. If we start to be uh, known for what we do and not what we criticize, if we start to be known for compassion instead of legalism. I'm going to close this one, um, this one story. Have you ever read the books or more likely seen the movies Narnia? The Chronicles of Narnia? There's a, one, of my, one of the most moving uh, scenes in any movie to me is in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, there's a point in the, in the book Prince Caspian, in the movie Prince Caspian, where Lucy, like the smallest one of the group, she's the youngest, she's the kid. They've all, she and her brothers have all been given weapons by Aslan to fight, um, to fight injustice in, 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 this, in this plot line. And she just has this little dagger. And at the end of this movie, there's been this massive fight that's gone on where her brothers, the ones that are maybe more equipped to be warriors, to be fighters, are out fighting for the Narnians. And there's this moment where Aslan shows up and starts to drive away this army of darkness. And they're coming back and they're retreating, but they're retreating to form another attack. And there's a bridge over water. And you see this Telmarine army, big chariots, big horses, big armor, starting to come on one side of the bridge and as they come over the bridge, as you can see the horizon line, all you see is you see this little girl walk out, and she's holding this dagger in her hand, her gift from Aslan. And you just think, she's just going to be trampled. And you see this army, this Telmarine army, confused. And then they finally start to charge. They're charging, and all there is is this little girl with the dagger. And as the army gets about halfway across the bridge, You see Aslan walk up, the lion, um, the Christ, Christ picture in the story. You see Aslan walk up and stand beside Lucy. And then water comes and it washes away the army. But the most beautiful thing to me about that story is you see Lucy not looking for an excuse, not thinking, all I have is a little dagger. You see Lucy knowing who she serves. You see Lucy knowing who stands with her. And she then takes that stand because she knows that she stands with Aslan. And when we go out, I don't know what your gift is. Maybe your gift is you have a business. Maybe your gift is you're a teacher. Maybe your gift is you're a father or a mother or a husband or a wife. But you have been given tools by the living God to be an agent of justice in this community, within this church, and in Simi Valley. And I think. What if we, what if we take a chance on God, and see what He does if we start to step up, and whatever our sphere of influence is, and maybe we look like Lucy about to get trampled by an army, but let's see if God shows up. That's all I've got for you guys. I'll print out. Um.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'm going to go ahead and uh, invite the worship team to come up. Um, just want to summarize one last thing uh, from this word. So worship team, you guys can come up for our closing song. The last thing I want to share with you, uh, from, and just thank so much for Jay to uh, paint this picture of justice, um, God's justice in our world. That I don't want to add much to what he said, but just to wrap up Isaiah 58. With God's justice, often we see this in Scripture, With God's justice and working, participating with God to see justice happen in our world, there are promises attached. Not rewards. Not rewards. It's not, oh, if you do these things, God will reward you. So it becomes some sort of formula to get God's good favor. But as we see in Isaiah 58, there are promises attached. God says there's an if-then. And if then, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. Remember, if you do these things, spend yourselves on behalf of the poor, then the Lord will guide you always. Satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. Strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. And then he says this, You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. The call to justice is that we get to partner with God, participate in what God is doing in the world, so that we can be known as restorers and repairers of that which is broken. So that we can hear the voice of God and see where he is at and go to those places with God. The call to justice, there's a promise attached. That God will be with us. Like Aslan was with Lucy. God will be with you. Let's pray. God, again, we, uh, we want to partner with you. We are eager to partner with what you are doing in this world. God, we do see injustice where things are broken and in need of repair, where relationships are broken and in need of restoration. God, and if we see those things, move us to act. God, help us to fight against indifference, apathy, cynicism. Those things, God, that would paralyze us from doing anything, that would tell us you can't make a change, that's too big of a task for you. God, may your spirit be a loud voice of encouragement in our ear that says you are the person for this job, for this task, for this relationship. God, strengthen us for the task to which you have called us to be repairers and restorers, walking humbly with you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for our closing song?